right. Um, welcome back to the punks. Um, it has been some time and we've done a bit more research and we decided to bring a bit more um, topics when it comes to sustainability back to the uptime punks because that's sort of what moves everybody out there at the moment from what we can see. Um, COP26 was maybe a big success to some and maybe a big failure to others. That is still debatable. That's probably something we're going to try to clarify in 2022. And Hunter, what do you think? COP26, was it a success or was it a failure? Um, that's a great question. <laughs> great way to, to, to kick this off. Um, and I do think, you know, sustainability, environmental issues are definitely becoming a very, uh, uh, an issue that a lot of people are very interested in, passionate about, invested in, in various ways. Uh, COP26, I would say, I, I, I find the COP structure and system itself to be sort of doomed to failure, but also kind of something that needs to be happening. Uh, I was actually in Glasgow running a workshop for the Global Green Media Network, uh, which is a, a global initiative that I co-direct with Piatari Kappa, the University of Warwick, and it's an HRC funded project that tries to look at sort of localized solutions uh, to mm. environmental media impacts. So the, the environmental consequences and effects of film and media production and we decided to stage something uh, to coincide with COP26 and also to spotlight some of the green initiatives in the Scottish film industry. Uh, and it was interesting yeah. to be there. I'd never been to a COP or in an adjacent to a in the periphery of a COP. Um, yeah. And the hoopla was everything that the media sort of makes it out to be. I do think that the things that defined the experience for me were the sense of inclusion and exclusion um okay it does still seem to be an event primarily for uh white western men of power and suits yeah. um and then you have uh sort of youth protest and other types of 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 resistance movements around it that are trying to draw attention to that um and it's very much like it's it, it, the the events and the connected events are supported by big industry and tech and so there's a lot of glossy sheen they have massive media teams that are making sure that it looks like a, a big budget film. Um, and then you have the sort of uh, the, the, the whisper campaigns announcing the arrival of Leo DiCaprio or Al Gore or, or yeah. Greta Thunberg or, you know, the, 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 the environmental celebrities that everyone's excited about. So I find it to be more of a more of a scene then it's like a PR stunt isn't it like it, yeah it's sort of a PR stunt it's sort of like a, a a gathering of people who have made this their brand um yeah. but at the same time it is also where you know it is the closest thing we have to a an organized global policy push uh for partnerships collaborations and agreements regarding dealing with climate change and we have to have that. That has to happen. Um, it, it needs to happen more urgently and on a larger scale, uh, which is part of the problem with the COP system is that, you know, it, it gets mired in the bureaucracy of, um, of, of sort of uh, larger, powerful policymakers and governments who honestly, uh, they, they profit a lot from what has, you know, led contributed to anthropogenic climate change so their action on it is is slow 
Yeah, well, um, you, you, I think me and you are pretty much on the same page here because, I mean, for me, it was shocking when we flew in. You see all these private jets standing in the airport. You have these Tesla cars. Um, <laughs> I don't know if you heard about that one, but somebody hasn't thought about that. They need to get charged. So they basically put um, diesel generators at the hotel to charge the Tesla cars. Um, okay, interesting. I did not hear about that. Yeah, you didn't hear about this. So, yeah, well, it, it's stuff like this. And um, it was quite like... Um, shocking because if you we followed it closely we interviewed a couple of people and um I, I think at some point it was just um maybe it was the long day or what it was but we had um a, one gentleman from a high-ranking position speaking to us on the podcast and um i was like yeah so what do you actually do here and he was like well it's all about collaboration and working together and i was like yeah i get that but what difference <laughs> do you, what difference do you make yeah. Like, where do you actually utilize what you have? Networking. Um, what the power you have? Yeah. yeah. What, like, what difference do you bring to the table? Are you the person that's gonna, I don't know, reinvent the wheel? And because you reinvented the wheel, it's gonna become so much smoother. Or have you brought a policy in place which meant that um, I don't know the carbon uh, output has to be lowered emissions or something like that? Mm -hmm. And he, the, the, the answer was because the only thing I heard the entire day was it is really great to work together with people. Yeah, okay, but what are you working on? <laughs> and this is sort of like, where, where, like end of the day, I was telling Tim, I was like, I really felt like yeah. it's a waste of time because it's like, you know, you spend, they spend millions of pounds to fly these people up there to speak about how yeah. they can speak with each other and work with each mm -hmm. other. And at the end, I mean, the guy who was holding the summit broke out almost in tears because everything he was promised for two weeks at the end didn't come through. Yeah. Um, so this just shows humanity, which is self-serving, and um, yeah. But I'm I think curious a great, to you know, a great a great barometer of of yeah. major events and zeitgeist in general. I think uh, I've always found comes uh, from UK taxi drivers, and uh, I had a tech, a great taxi driver in Edinburgh. So I was staying in Edinburgh because prices in Glasgow had gotten so horrible. And uh, he summed it up perfectly in, in, in pointing out that there's just, there's a sheer hypocrisy to it that makes it very difficult to legitimize um, and, and, and take seriously. And so for people, you know, who are outside of that circle of power, it really seems like an exclusive enclosed space for people to take private jets and motorcades and stuff, yeah. uh, you know, around uh, globetrotting in order to discuss an issue that is, is very much caused by that uh sensibility so yeah yeah it's, it's it's just it's really it's um i mean it was just very strange you know it has been also my first cop and everything but it's like i, I really thought like i was like well i just think this is it's just really odd i mean it's literally people meeting to clap to tap each other on the shoulder and say you're doing such a great job yeah but what yeah. you're doing a great job in like what you can't define it even you know but um yeah it, 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 enough of trash talking the cop <laughs> Susanna um I'm sure you have your own opinion about the cop 26 maybe it would be nice to get that one but then maybe also you can introduce Hunter and what made you bring Hunter on the uptown punks absolutely thank you for having me and Hunter thank you to joining us uh Paul thank and you. Tim um yeah, they are you. really yeah, they're really the pioneers to start the whole Uptime Punk podcast. Actually, during COVID, a challenging time, but have actually made it a great success. So 
absolute a pleasure for everybody listening in today. So Hunter Vaughn is a senior research associate at the Mandino Center for Technology and Democracy at the University of Cambridge. Given the challenge of travel and border control right now, I think Hunter is actually still in the US land, but he will soon be actually hopefully spending more time in the UK, uh, in Cambridge, and then closer to uh, Paul and Tim, who's actually gonna be in London. So I wish everybody stay healthy and well. Um, well, Dr. Vaughn is the author of many very successful um, publications, and I read them, and they are very uh, excellent, so I highly recommend them. A few of them is Where Film Meets Philosophy, is a Columbia University Press back in 2013, and he also co-editor of the Anthem Handbook of Screen Theory. Um, I believe that's actually a London press. Um, personally, for me, I have the distinct pleasure of working with Hunter um, back in 2021 and participated as a guest to him uh, on Energy Ethics Seminar uh, hosted by the Energy Ethics and Andrew uh, organization that focuses on alternate coastal energy future and equitable climate uh, resiliency, a topic that I'm really passionate at. So it was really a pleasure to work with Hunter on that. Um, then I uh, reciprocated and invited Hunter and uh, to join and co-lecture with one of a good friend of ours. Um, let's see if I can get her name correct. Dr. Nicole Stahlowski uh, from uh, New, York, New York University. And we participated and held a workshop of 90 minutes actually at the National Engineering Day at the World Engineering Summit hosted by Definitely the individual, the Singapore Deputy Prime Minister himself uh, for the whole entire global engineering society. So from there, we talk about science-based approach just reaching net zero future. So these are just a few, um, I would say, uh, work that uh, Hunter has been uh, uh, contributing and leading. So it absolutely is a pleasure today to actually have Paul and Tim and you all have a chance to um, interact with Hunter. So back to you, Paul and Tim and uh, Hunter again, thank you for being here. Um, very excited to actually have you. Great, can we please talk about movies now? Hunter, you have, obviously you are, I guess you're some kind of a movie buff yourself and everybody's talking about this particular movie. Um, don't look up, there will be no spoilers. So, um, because we don't want to give it away. We'll just um, discuss the movie and maybe draw a couple of lessons um, from it. So Hunter, why is every everybody talking about this movie, you reckon? Oh, I don't know. I haven't heard of it. <laughs> that, is, that, is the, that is the most savage thing you could say. Um, <laughs> I know, right. I know. Um, you know, great question, and I'll preface this with, uh, so I've been working, um, I've been working on in a subfield uh, that we refer to as environmental media studies for a little over a decade now, um, and it started off uh, what brought me to work on what we'll talk about probably later, uh, and looking at sort of global digital infrastructures. Um, I really came from, from film and media studies and got very, uh, very interested in the environmental ramifications of film culture and both not necessarily the messages that 
it produces, but more the impacts of its making, um, its energy intensity, uh, the resources that go into it, uh, the ways in which it pollutes and disrupts ecosystems in the process of making these mass, you know, these these integral aspects of popular screen culture. Um, and so it's very interesting now to suddenly see, uh, you know, this, this, the newest Netflix binge uh, treasure be something that is sort of about climate change, but not really, um, because for some reason, our cultural register for climate change tends to only happen allegorically. Um, and so in this case, you know, I, I know that it's a pretty shallow or, or transparent allegory, but an allegory nonetheless. Uh, I think that it's important that, um, that given its influence over cultural values and environmental perceptions uh, in the, for the public, you know, it's really important that, that popular culture engage with climate change and engage with environmental issues and get people talking about it. So if at the very least the film's goal uh, or purpose is to do that, then it seems to have succeeded. Um, I think that it seems to have given a cathartic experience for lots of environmental and climate scientists and ecologists who don't understand why for decades they have been ignored and not listened yeah. to um, by politicians and, and by the public. Um, although although I, I, I would maybe contradict this because just film like, do you know the day after tomorrow? And, I do. And all these yeah. kinds of, they, they existed 20 years old, I believe. So it's they not, they, they, they it's not something do. new, right? Allegories not... about climate change and, and catastrophism and, 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 and post-apocalyptic worlds that kind of alert us to, to what's happening in the real world. They're not new. So They're not, absolutely. And, and, and I'm just asking myself, it's, it's a bit of an irony that the main cultural um, influence over climate change comes from Hollywood, which, as you describe it, is a place that itself is really problematic when it comes to... <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, hence the title of my book that came out a couple of years ago, Hollywood's Dirtiest Secret, The Hidden exactly, Environmental Cost of exactly. the Movies. Exactly. Yeah. And, and that's what I wanted to talk about as well. What are some of Hollywood's dirtiest secrets? Um, I mean, you, you mentioned it, that film production is potentially a really maybe destructive mm -hmm. business when it comes to, to nature and the environment. But can you give some real life examples on, on yeah when yeah some, absolutely I can you know, give a you know a couple of types of example you know one has to do with the life cycle of of the industry itself uh, because you have massive amounts of, of resources that go into for example the production of raw film stock which was sort of the the building block of analog film for all of the 20th century uh, was mostly produced at least in North America for Hollywood at the Kodak plant in Rochester, New York. And that plant was siphoning millions of gallons of water off Lake Ontario every day in order to develop uh, and, and perfect the chemistry and manufacture the film stock, and then dumping basically dirty chemical water into the Genesee River. And the result of that was that the city of Rochester became the most carcinogenic city in the US. 
and that raw film stock would then be shipped back to Hollywood. And that's what everything, you know, all the movies that we know of from the 20th century out of the US were, were made on that, on, on that raw material. And so that's sort of a, a life cycle uh, and supply chain aspect of it. But there's also, and there, there's a far, there's a totally new network of that life cycle impact today with digital technology, but there's also specific uh, interruptions and impacts to, to local ecosystems and spaces that are caused by Hollywood productions. Um, and this was magnified or amplified sort of by the, the growth of globalization um, and, and neoliberal um, capitalism. And then that from the 90s on, and you saw a lot of, of Hollywood films using uh, free trade agreements like NAFTA to shoot in, in places like Mexico where the labor was much cheaper, regulations were much more lax. And one of the you know, great ironies of Don't Look Up and the entire environmental rebranding and celebrity of Leo DiCaprio is that he made millions of dollars starring in two of the most environmentally destructive film productions that Hollywood has made in the past half century being Titanic and the beach. Um, you know, Titanic was shot largely in a, a, a what they called the, the 100 day studio, which was a massive set that Fox built down in a, in a village in Mexico, right off the Pacific Ocean. And the process of building this replica of the ship and shooting there decimated a sea urchin population. So it, it led to massive uh, biodiversity um, destruction. Uh, and completely just wiped out or badly harmed a local fishing community by disrupting this local marine ecosystem. The beach similarly actually moved a lot of, of plants and trees on the island, uh, the Fifi Island uh, in, off, off the coast of Thailand, um, which, the, which helped to basically destroy the support system for a natural barrier dune that, that was a protectant from monsoons. Also by generating massive tourism to that area, uh, destroyed the coral reef system to the point where the Thai government had to put a moratorium on tourism there a year or two ago. I don't know if that's still undergoing. So, you know, whether oh, it's just the, recently lifted though, that- It was recently lifted, okay. Yeah. yeah, I think I saw it in the news, which is why the timing for this particular episode with you, Hunter, couldn't have been better. You know, you have, <laughs> don't look up, you have the COP26, who's just a couple of months, uh, just a couple of months ago, you have the beach opening up. So um, yeah. this is not an advertisement, don't go there, right? Uh, yeah, don't go just there. Just go on Google picture search and look at it. That's fine enough. And then, no, um, in, not advertising this so it's kind of interesting to see um uh let's maybe look a bit closer at the digital age of um film because a mas message that we often hear is that digitizing things is actually um you know making some of the processes cleaner making mm -hmm. it less impactful making it um you know also a bit less visible probably because compared to Kodak films, um, Netflix movies don't really leave physical traces, would one believe? But um, I think you've also worked yes. on that question <laughs> as well, whether digitization in the film industry has had a certain impact. So can you, can you tell us a bit more? 
Yeah, and you know, I I, I appreciated uh, Susanna's take on on COP twenty six, and you know, the importance of of the Biden administration, Biden Harris administration, getting the U.S. back into a sort of global climate conversation. And I don't want to to frame anything as as purely bad or only offer criticism without positivity or or you know balance. And I do think that the digitization of the film industry has definitely promoted some practices and technologies that alleviate or mitigate the impact on the environment. So for example, the fact that cameras are smaller and have much uh, much larger memory built into them um, means that you know shoots in vulnerable spaces have, you know, can actually, like they can shoot much longer in one go, so they don't have to keep coming in and out of a space. So if you're talking about like shooting uh, on the water, then you can basically shoot for, for many hours at once instead of having to go out, come back, go out, come back. There are definitely advantages, I think, to, to digital technology, but, you know, you make a good point that people, people are under the illusion that digital culture is immaterial and this has been strongly manufactured by the big tech companies and these narratives and terms and concepts like the cloud right we we are led to believe that all of this data that this entire uh virtual existence exists immaterially somewhere in the ether but the reality is that it, it, it's very material not only is it you know the, the binary code of zeros and ones being transmitted is actually matter to some degree, but it's also being stored in data centers. It's being transmitted through subsea cables. It's being beamed from satellites and all of these things require massive uh, resource intensity, energy dependency, and, and produce various types of, of greenhouse gas emissions. And the development manufacturing of the very technologies that do make digital filmmaking more efficient. And I think that that is why it's billed as, as greener. Um, so post-production becomes less material, more efficient in a computer. Shooting becomes more efficient in a digital camera that has a bigger memory card. But the manufacturing of the base for that requires massive rare metal mining, which is largely done globally in environmentally destructive and very much uh, you know, socially unjust ways um and then it is you know largely put together in what are referred to as labor campuses which is kind of the new term for sweatshops and then when we are done with it ends up being outsourced to what are referred to as digital dumping grounds um which are you know tend to be in previously colonized nations um in africa and asia where most Western or global e-waste is, is shipped and is, is left to be picked through, burnt down into the precious metals, which itself is this massive carcinogenic process that leads to major health hazards and that yeah. poisons groundwater. I mean, there's like the entire life cycle network of environmental impacts of, of digital technology and culture is just completely different from from the analog uh, base of the 20th century. And yet again, you know, we are under this illusion that it is immaterial because most of these things, whether it's the, the metal mines or the labor campuses or the 
digital dumping grounds are kept largely out of view, uh, as are the subsea cables and the data centers and, and all of that. Um, this is something that has, you know, has long been the, in a way, the sort of um, the great advantage of film um, and, and image culture in general is that it doesn't really seem to make a product. That's why, yeah. you know, Hollywood built itself as the dream factory because right. what they were selling was was not an object, but a worldview and, and an aspiration. But the reality is that they actually did make products. They made, uh, those were objects and they're material yeah. objects and they continue and, to be material objects. And, and, and on the other hand, one, when one watches a movie, doesn't really have the impression to consume a product either, isn't it? Going forward, what, what, do you reckon the agents in Hollywood, namely like Leo DiCaprio, Jennifer Lawrence, who I think produced the movie, Don't Look Up, would they ever be able to kind of have an inwards um, perspective on their own industry and produce a parody movie on Hollywood itself? Or do you think they wouldn't, uh, they wouldn't really have the agency to do that? Or uh, ask differently, how do you think these people can transform their own industry. Because with the data center industry, we've seen that most of these efforts come from companies like Google, Amazon, Facebook. Would you think that Hollywood can actually do the same effort and you know, engage in this uh, sort of self-criticism um, and transform itself to, to be more responsible, more transparent on how the movies are produced? And what role do you think would the Leo DiCaprio play in that? Um, yeah, that's a that's a good question, and I think that I I do you know the the work I do on film and television culture is largely because I believe that they can actually you know do something to change and and become more environmentally uh, conscientious, not in their messaging but in their practice and in their practice as role models. You know, it's not just the things that we see on screen that makes Hollywood influential. Hollywood uh, filmmakers and stars uh, have long been seen as, as sort of role models for, for public values. Um, the same decade that gave rise to films like A Day After Tomorrow, An Inconvenient Truth in the early and mid 2000s, so the 90s basically as climate change, global warming, uh, ozone depletion, as these became more publicly understood or discussed issues, Hollywood, Hollywood's always understood how to, you know, the importance of PR, the importance of, of public perception, but also the importance of self-regulation because that's how they avoid governmental regulation. That's what they did with censorship in the 1930s was to avoid governmental regulation based on social outcry about the values expressed in Hollywood films. They created the production code and they just said, hey, we got this covered. We'll, we'll, we'll regulate ourselves. You don't need to to come bother us. And they kind of did a similar thing, I think, with the environment in 1990, in the 1990s by creating um, sort of greenwashed green initiatives on the websites, uh, creating environmental or sustainability executives at many of the studios. Some of the celebrities and filmmakers rebranded themselves as environmentalists. Um, but most of the, you know, it's still largely business as usual and the bottom line of profit um, at all costs, and, and sort of the valuation, the, the bizarre romanticization of excess and waste 
that's part of like the Hollywood persona, I think that those things have not at all changed. And so, you know, the, the more prominent environmental celebrities like Leo DiCaprio or Mark Ruffalo, uh, Shailene Woodley, um, I, I think that their ability, whether it's through social media following or through the lingering power of, of stardom in general, if you know their ability to shape environmental values or to make people aware or engaged with environmental issues is important, but I don't think that it counterbalances or outweighs the fact that they continue to participate in a Hollywood and in a screen industry that has not adapted and that does not hold itself accountable for the same mitigation of, of environmental impacts. And so that's, you know, I think that there is, this, this is all a very slow um, sea change. And I think that, you know, I'm a part of a, a UNF triple C initiative, sectoral initiative that is trying to sort of officialize itself, formalize itself and uh, build out across the world with a global inclusion sensibility for the film and media sector. Um, to work on environmental or green practice. And I think that then there's a lot of buy-in from studios. There's a lot of buy-in from filmmakers. I think that this is something that is ultimately desired, whether it's because it's actually financially efficient and makes sense, uh, whether it's for PR or whether it's because people actually care about the environment, whichever. It's probably some, you know, some permutation of all three um, in, in different ways for everyone involved. But I do think that, you know, this is, I, about 10 years ago, Luis Sahoyos, the filmmaker who made The Cove and, and Racing Extinction, he had just won an Oscar for The Cove. And we had him come talk at the university I was working at up in Michigan. And afterwards, I was basically grilling him as a filmmaker who makes films about the environment, about wildlife that seem very, you know, pro, conservation, preservation, uh, environmental ethics, if he had specific um, metrics for charting and assessing and mitigating the environmental impact of his own filmmaking. And he, he you know, made a comment that there is carbon neutral filmmaking, but that it's kind of like buying indulgences, the old Catholic practice of paying your way into heaven or, or paying off your sins. I thought that, that that's always lingered with me. And then Racing Extinction, the next film he made, there's a scene where he actually acknowledges the fact that as an environmentalist, the worst thing you can actually do for the environment is make a film about the environment. And so I think that acknowledging, you know, I think that if the people who help to shape the practices, the values and the brand of popular screen culture, if those people would not only sort of externalize that in terms of messaging about bigger problems in the world, but also internalize it in a self-reflexive way of looking at and making major changes to the way in which uh, films and television is made, that, that, that's, the, that's the next great leap that remains yeah. to be done. Yeah. So Hunter, so, you and, okay. yeah, so Hunter, you and I are joint researchers in trying to show progress in the race to net zero, specifically focus on infrastructure project. 
And your expertise are definitely very helpful in terms of the driving force and the obstacles to a more environmental, um, I guess, sustainability direction in, in this sector to, to generate some results on carbon neutrality. So can you maybe take a few minutes to talk to the audience about the research topics that you're focusing on at University of Cambridge? Because I think it has significant ramifications for the results that uh, in our collaboration, we can help on in setting the right science-based target. So can you spend a couple of minutes just uh, you know, focus on what you're working on and maybe in your response, tell us a little bit more detail on the Global Green Media Network and a UN sectorial initiative that you are leading. That would be great. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate, I appreciate the, the guided focus there. Um, so yeah, so the, the, the film and media work is largely focusing on in, uh, bringing together expertise from research, from policymakers, but also from green practitioners, which have really started to pop up in the last decade um, in, in the industry and trying to help facilitate initiatives, agreements, and conversations towards more, uh, towards greener modes of filmmaking. In some cases, that really just means more conscientiousness on set uh, for the impacts of a surrounding ecosystem. But in some cases, uh, such as you see in places like Vancouver and Sardinia, where you know uh, runaway productions love love to go um, because they're scenic, because they have tax incentives, etc., they're starting to leverage that popularity into ways to uh, insist on cleaner forms of energy use on sets for films that are made there, uh, which then helps with the development of renew local renewable energy uh, companies. And so I think that there are some sort of broader policy municipal um, steps that can be taken there hand in hand with film production to, to mitigate its environmental impact. Um, beyond just work in, in film and media though, you know, and this is Susanna, this is where you and I have have connected um, is the work that I do with Nicole Staroselsky, who I know has been on this podcast and our sustainable subsea networks team, which is working with uh, the subsea telecommunication cable industry and sector to work on uh, increasing their environmental sustainability and pushing for more social equity in relation to the coastal communities that are affected uh, or, or, or on whose land um, cable landing sites and data centers are, are built. And I think that part of uh, you know, a big potential push there and a big solution, if not solution, um, a positive shift uh, would come through, you know, ICT is gonna keep growing. I, I don't think that the COVID pandemic is necessarily a plateau. It's more of just a tipping point and a new normal for the importance, centrality and dependency on digital communication and internet uh, connectivity that you know, is going to continue well into the 21st century, um, if not beyond. And as the dependency and centrality of that connectivity grow, so do the provisions of infrastructure to provide for that. Uh, so again, you know, these are the, this is the, the skeletal system 
and the um, and the circulatory system for the data, the information, the communication uh, that that passes through the internet. This is the the data centers, the fiber optic cables, all of that is is, is expanding, and as it expands, it's incursion into ecosystems and its high dependency on energy are just going to also you know proliferate uh, increase at the same time and so if that's going to happen I don't think anyone's going to stop you know no one's going to stop movies from being made no one's going yes. to stop big tech or ICT from growing yep. or connectivity from being desired uh, so the real question is if those are going to happen how do we try to provide a framework for a future in which okay. that happens in an environmentally sustainable and a socially equitable way? Indeed, and, indeed. Thank you. And, and I think that's basically where we can all come in is to continue to talk about this issue and bring the net zero design that uh, is really not the technology is sitting around because it's available now and actually mm -hmm. get it deployed and get it implemented. Um, I mean, this week I just got involved in a few projects with um, some very well-known company um, to put a plan in place to um, get rid of um, these idle assets that sit around. They never really perform well anyway as a standby generator using diesel. And I think by, by implementing across the whole global footprint for them, I think it's gonna have significant implications for our sector and the cloud infrastructure, but also expand into other sectors such as the film and media um, and um, actually hospital care and healthcare point, point of care locations, uh, because we, we can provide the, um, the local environment with um, good energy and uh, reduce the waste and eliminate the waste. So we are rolling out a lot of these uh, technology now um, to help towards moving that. So hopefully we have something positive and good results to share on Earth Day this year. Nice, that's excellent. And if I if I may just uh, add to a point you just made, Susanna, and that these similar technologies are reaching out beyond ICT to, to sectors like film and media. This is another major reason why the environmental ramifications and aspects of film and media culture are all the more important or, or pressing and also complicated now is that with convergence media, with the introduction of digital technology and digital devices on which we watch our movies, stream our content, but also do a lot of other things, Film is now part of this bigger digital technology matrix, right? And yeah. so and, and so it's reliant on the same life cycle um, of, of, of rare metal mining, of manufacturing, of e-waste, of energy dependency. It, it is part of the data that gets circulated within this, this global um, this global connected, uh, infrastructure. And so I think that, you know, I think that there will be there, while this makes it seem as though you can't disaggregate this, the, the components like film, uh, for example, from the larger machinery, I think you can, but I also think that it lends itself to potentially more holistic approaches and holistic solutions like you're talking about. Uh, for example, you know, energy solutions, that will be applicable not just to one 
part of a sector, but to an entire sector or to multiple sectors that are connected. Okay, yeah. uh, guys, we need to cut short, um, but you know, let's make it like Hollywood. Let's make this um, talks with Hunter a franchise and milk it to death. No, <laughs> bad comment, sorry. Hunter, I have one last question for you. What's your favorite movie? I was wondering about that all the time. Oh, wow. I haven't been asked that in so long. Um, what is my favorite movie? Well, what's a movie I, you would recommend? To yeah, me? I'm afraid that this is going to be a very anticlimactic uh, finale to this episode. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I'm going to request a sequel. Um, and, and we'll Excellent. have to, to think on that. Um, I, I I will have to think on that. I, ah, I, I what a cliffhanger! You can't do that, Hunter. Okay. I know. I'm uh, thinking like you know, there's some there are some some classics. I'm a big fan of. Uh, I really like 2001, um, but I also really love Waiting for Guffman. So between like epically philosophical sci-fi movies from the 60s and 1990s mockumentary uh, absurd comedies um i don't think that i have like one particular type of film that i like the most i would say though that over the past few years i have been very impressed by the diversity of content that's being generated uh, especially across mainly streaming platforms and this is largely because they're diversifying who are making the texts um, the, 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 the inclusion of, you know, people of color, of indigenous uh, filmmakers, yeah. of queer filmmakers, of more women uh, into the creative yeah. side of film and television, I think has Which been is... an enormous um, boon for, you know, a, just such a, has really changed the, the face of, of popular screen culture over the past few years. And so I can only hope that that, that continues. Because Tim, what, it is Tim, another... what is your favorite movie? Yeah, oh. let's flip that around. What are, what are everyone's okay. favorite movies? Um, well, I know what Paul's favorite movie is, so I'll let him go oh. first. Okay, okay. Paul? Put you on the spot there, mate. <laughs> my favorite movie? You don't know what's my favorite movie? <laughs> I bet you um, I know. Well, it really depends on what mood I'm in. Um, I, it I always really does. Love, it's going to come cliche now. Um Braveheart, maybe, or The Gladiator, okay. Godfather. Yeah. I mean, it's this is just when movies were still made like movies and not behind a computer, <laughs> um, when CGI wouldn't make um, <clears throat> a cat or a dog look creepy on the screen. Um, this is yeah. for me when movies were still movies like Master and Commanders and, um, yeah, just real filmmaking would it take hours and weeks it's... to shoot one scene. Uh, rather than probably oh brother where art do from the coen brothers um, interesting but there are many others uh, there are who i like excellent so susanna yeah. what about you yes susanna because you're a completely different generation now i'm curious <laughs> oh. well <laughs> very subtle my... paul you're gonna laugh when I tell you that my favorite movie is actually Kung Fu Panda. <laughs> and delightful. it it takes um I mean for those who know me and you all do, yeah. uh, it's no surprise I said that. No, and it doesn't... the story, yeah, the story is so beautiful. It's been it's it's it has so much cultural 
um, implication. And you all know I love animals and panda, of course, why not? And I, I really like it because uh, part of it is every time I go back and watch it with my family, my daughters, my friends, um, we just have a very happy feeling and we get more out of it every time we, we saw the movie in terms of the significant implications of something very simple. Uh, and um, you know, every little gesture that we make is never too small when it is actually done with gratitude and Kung Fu Panda is about celebration of gratitude, right? So I, that's why I like it. Okay. And the best noodles. Well, I, I would like to, I would like to try the noodles in that noodle house with the dumplings. Um, yes. and, you, and you never eat one bow at a time, right? You know, that's, uh, yeah, that would be, no, that's really no, funny. I think me and Tim would have a fight over the food. It happens on a daily basis <laughs> in the office. Um, but yeah, we've become, yeah, um, yeah. we well, share a granola you. bar now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, thank you, everyone. And thank you, Hunter. Um, back to you. Yeah. Uh, yeah wonderful thanks. host of Uptime Punk, Paul and Tim. Well, thanks for um, including me. Well, Tim, uh, we forgot one thing. Hunter has the last word. So, um, Hunter, is there anything you want to leave for the generations to come? And then we oh. can all switch to the next episode <laughs> uh i i feel like i've i've said many of the things that would leave for the next generation i like uh susanna's ending note of of celebrating gratitude and i think that you know gratitude and appreciation for for what we have is a is a very important um thing that sometimes gets lost in the constant online zoomiverse existence of, of 2021 and so yeah gratitude, appreciation, and, um, you know, acceptance of, of, of difference and diversity and, and collaboration and embrace of, of different perspectives in a united cause. I, we joked about sort of COP26 being uh, a, a self-congratulating space where people talk, uh, you know, slap each other on the back for collaborating, but they're not really collaborating on anything. But I think, Susanna, you know, you're right that collaboration and and unity are important first steps and and better than the alternative so i guess in that 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 would be my very vague uh last word but feel free to edit this out because i don't think this is the uh the best part of the the discussion so far no worries thank you <laughs> it is fine Hunter. all right